This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind whenever you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you believe that he is love, then you will love first. If you believe that he's holy, you'll run from sin. If you believe that he is omnipotent, then you'll pray big prayers. If you believe that he is omnipresent, then you'll be comforted. If you believe that he's sovereign, then you'll have peace at knowing that everything works together for his glory and for the good of those who love him. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about God as being a God who is justice and wrathful? What do you imagine when those things come into your mind? He is just, he is righteous, and he is wrathful against anything that is unrighteous. There is a song by, some of you guys have heard of this guy. He had a few hits back in the day. His name was John Lennon. His song called Imagine may be one of the coolest songs that he wrote in his solo career and a long career of great songwriting. But listen to some of these lyrics. And I I cut it up for time's sake, so I'm not going to try to rhyme. I'm not going to do the woos in the middle. And I'll try not to sing. But here's some of the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. I think it's an ironic opening line of imagine there's no heaven when what he describes is probably as close to heaven as we can imagine. But he's making a massive assumption. He's assuming that the here and now is it. That what we're living in today is all that there is to live for. He's assuming that death really is the end of all existence. But we know from Scripture, Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die, after that comes judgment. We all want a perfect world. Just most don't want to repent to have the perfect heart. Lennon's song is accurately named because it really is pure imagination. As long as there is sin in the human creature, as long as we are selfish, as long as for the duration of our life, all we really think about is ourselves first. No one is exempt. Each of us will be judged by a righteous God. Psalm 98.9, he has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Equity means great fairness. Matthew 25, 
31-34 and verse 41. This will get you a little uncomfortable. When the Son of Man, this is Jesus, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King, this is Jesus, will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is clear that Jesus will be the judge of all. Justice, the word in the original language, means to be stiff or straight. And the idea is that If someone is just, they are morally inflexible. They are unbiased, they're fair, and they're righteous. Deuteronomy 23, 3-4, talking about God, says, Ascribe greatness to God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You see, God just doesn't have the, the quality of justice. He doesn't decide to be just. God is justice. Justice is the very essence of his nature. And all of God's law is just because it is from who God is. All of God's instruction, his rules, his boundaries, his limitations are from his perfect, just nature. And so, who is worthy to uphold a perfect law except justice himself? He is the only right. To judge. He justly gives rewards and he justly gives punishments. He calls people to account for their behavior and designates their eternal destinies accordingly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Everything that we hide in darkness is going to be revealed. Every motive of our heart is going to be exposed. Everything will be laid bare. We will stand alone before the throne of all-knowing God, and he will sift through us. What is our motives? What is our purpose? What did we live for? What did we think? What did we speak? What did we do? They're all going to be laid out before a perfect judge. A Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Lauren, I like this quote from him. He says, Everything else in the universe is only righteous to the degree that it conforms to the righteous nature of God. It is evil whenever it fails to do so. And God rewards and punishes all moral beings on the basis of how they conform to his standard. Anybody in here live up to God's standard? (laughs) His justice works quickly to reward the faithful for their faithfulness. Every good and righteous thing that we do, will be noticed. But his justice stands against those who are evil. And he will execute fair punishment. He will not condemn the innocent, and he will not clear the guilty. And someone may say, but isn't Jesus like the most loving person ever? If if he's so loving, how can he judge? I want you to think about this for a minute. It may be hard to accept that God's character is justice, that his character is wrathful. And when we look at a God who calls himself love, who calls himself patient and merciful, it may be hard to park those together, but 
Imagine for a minute, do you really want to live in a world where someone's motives and actions are not held accountable? Do you want to live in a world where people can do whatever comes to their mind to do and there's never a line drawn in the sand that something is right or wrong? Do you want to live in a community or in a society where the greatest cruelty or evil or selfishness can run rampant and no one ever calls them to account? No one ever calls them to the carpet. No one ever judges what is right or wrong. What if there was no justice? I don't know about you guys, but I bet you most people and me, we might think to ourselves, what's the point of being humble? What's the point of being selfless or restrained in my desires? What's the point in being obedient? I'll just do whatever benefits me, whatever I enjoy. Wherever, Wherever justice is silent, Extreme cruelty will go unchecked, and people can do evil with total freedom. And you may ask, how can a loving God judge? How can he be merciful and wrathful? How can he not be? A loving God who is just is a God who is kind to the innocent and rewards the faithful, and he has wrath and justice and punishment against the guilty. Wrath in the Bible, the word literally means to be heated up, burning and fury. And so did God just lose his temper? He just had this moment of wild anger? No. It is part of his character that he is consistently and perpetually standing against what is evil. God is not human. We have to use words like anger or wrath to try to wrap our minds around God. But just like love, we have to try to wrap our minds around using English human language. Love is permanent and perpetual for God, and so is his wrath and his justice. And they're not, if we take justice away from God, then his love is nothing more than just sentimentality. It's just emotion. No, for him to love someone, he also has to protect, to guard, and to care. For him to be holy, he must protect and guard against holiness. Second Thessalonians says this really clearly. This is evidence of the righteousness of the righteous judgment of God. Now, Paul is writing to people being persecuted. People are going out of their way. They're forming mobs to hurt God's people. They're coming out and they're dragging them to jail. They're torturing them. They're killing them. They're feeding them to lions. You have to understand that he is writing to people that are being tormented for their faith. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. I recognize you're suffering for the kingdom of God since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So he's saying, no, God's righteousness is that those who are coming and attacking your family, they're going to get their due reward. They will receive affliction for what they're pouring out on you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And we talked about this in omnipresence, that this doesn't mean that God's presence is not there at punishment, there in hell. In fact, What this means is that his face is turned away from him, his face being his favor, his mercy, his grace, his patience. So his face being turned away means his presence is there in the full fury, executing punishment without mercy, without patience, without grace. 
God is not detached. He's not an apathetic judge. Holy God has been offended by the disease of our wickedness. We have called ourselves gods and we've clothed ourselves in the very disease that he stands against. And there are four expressions in the Bible of God's wrath. The first one is catastrophic wrath. And we see, these, we see this displayed in things like when God killed everybody at the flood, except for Noah and his family. I don't know why they put this on all like preschool walls. Hey, look, all the cute animals and the dead bodies in the water. This is God's divine wrath against sin. Scripture says that people were doing everything that came in their heart to do. They were just running rampant. There was no one drawing a line in the sand. There was no justice. And God executed justice. We see God's wrath poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah when he dropped fire and sulfuric acid on the city and obliterated them from the face of the earth. Whenever the angel of death came through Egypt and took out the firstborn in every family, whenever he opened up the ground and swallowed those who were rebellious in Moses' camp, God does not mess around. He is striking fear in the hearts of people. His wrath is shown, and it is just, and it is right that he does so. The second place that we see his wrath, boy, this one bites me all the time, is his consequential wrath. It's just a long way of saying that we get what we've created. We lay in the bed that we have made. This is expressed in the principle of sowing and reaping. This is where God turns people over to the consequences of their own decisions. This is how someone can be in prison and come to belief in God, and they don't think that they deserve to get out of prison because they're there for their own, for their own decisions. Will we experience the weight and the repercussions of our decisions? Romans 8, 1 through 18 talks about how God turns people over to their sin all the time. It opens with saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then three times in the next verses, he says, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. He gave them up to dishonorable passions, and he gave them up to a debased mind. One of God's ways of showing wrath is just to turn us over to our own mistakes, to feel the consequences of our sin. Galatians 6, 7-8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, for whatever one sows, that means plants, that's what you're going to reap. That's what you're going to get. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from his flesh who will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So how does God punish here? By withholding his grace and favor to allow people to receive the consequences of their own action. And you know what? If God's catastrophic wrath is to turn people to fear God and return them back to him, so is his consequential wrath. Is that whenever we feel the weight of our own decisions, we come back to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. It's meant to turn people back to him. Proverbs 1, 29-31 says, Because they hated the knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would, they would have none of my counsel. This is God speaking. They would have none of my counsel and despise all of my correction. Therefore, they will eat the fruit of their own way, their own decisions, and have the fill of their own devices. So there's catastrophic wrath. There's consequential wrath. And here's a really big word that you can take home and sound smart. Eschatological wrath. Don't worry about remembering it. What it means is the end of times, the end of days. This is the future, final, and full outpouring of God's wrath. 
on unbelievers, on wickedness, on sin. It is a final reckoning. Jesus talks about that God will come one day with his angels, and it's like a fisherman that drags a net on the bottom of the lake. And when he pulls it up, there's fish of all kinds. And there's some fish he chooses to keep. And there's some fish he throws away. And that's what's going to happen at this reckoning. It's going to begin with Jesus' return. Remember the big white horse? His robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. And he comes with a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes on fire. And then it has its full culmination at the judgment seat. Whenever it talks about him coming on this, this horse and he's executing judgment of the nations, it's a mess. It's scary. In fact, Revelation 6 says that people are going to run and hide in caves. And in the caves, they will cry out to the mountain to cave in on them. Because their death of being buried alive is more satisfying, less terrible than the wrath of God being poured out. Can you imagine? Can you imagine thinking to yourself, I'd rather die caved in than to meet God? That's because they know their sin. They know their rebellion. They know their wickedness. And they also know that they chose it. Then there will be the final judgment. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Bear with me. This is so crazy and scary. John is writing, he says, Then I saw a white, a great white throne, and him, who is Jesus, was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown. She was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a terrifying conclusion. Hell will be permanent. It will be an outpouring of God's burning wrath. How can this be a loving God? How can this be a God who declares himself patient and merciful? Whenever I lived in, in Tulsa, I went to a, a museum of Jewish history, and they had a section about World War II, and there was a picture that caught my attention. And it was, it was a sick picture. It was a concentration camp, and there was a woman holding her baby, and there was a soldier stand with his rifle at his shoulder aiming at her. And the caption beneath the picture said, that soldiers, for the sake of saving bullets, would take pride in killing the mother and the child she was holding with one shot. Maybe it was trying to hit them both through the head and the heart. Maybe it was hitting the mother from behind so she would fall forward and crush her child. Or maybe she'd be pregnant and miscarry as she died. And it's just the, the debased sickness that is in the human creature whenever like these soldiers, we have no restraints. And that's what they had. They had dehumanized these people into just being objects. And they were given full reign to do whatever they wanted with them. And at that point, evil ran rampant. And you cannot tell me that there is a God of love who is not holding accountable the guilty and the evil. 
Because the same God who's holding them accountable is the same God that is loving her. And it is loving towards her that they get wrath and justice. How does God's love and his wrath come together? It is because in perfect justice, the guilty are held accountable and the innocent are rewarded and cared for. God cannot be neutral. The wrath and justice of God is an expression of his holiness and love. And because he is righteous, he hates sin. So much so, and, and heaven gets this. We, we don't get it because we're still here, but we're going to get it when we get there. Heaven is actually singing hallelujahs to the fact. Revelation 19, they're singing hallelujah to the God who brings vengeance. The martyrs are crying out, the blood of innocents are crying out in heaven saying, when, when, O God, will you avenge us? And it will please him. And it will please all of heaven when the day comes that he pours out his wrath against sin. Here's a tough question. Who is his wrath against? Who will receive this decisive justice? Because holy, righteous God must reject anything that is not 100% perfect, that does not live up to his holiness, and that does include us. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 53.3, There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64.6, We have all become one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, the very best that we can do, at our most Goodness, at our best days, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A polluted garment to them meant what you wipe with and discard in the bathroom. That's the best we've got. No one can make themselves righteous on the grounds of their character or conduct. God sees through us. No matter how good we act, our hearts are still selfish. And his standards are way too high. But there's one more kind of wrath that we see displayed in God. One more that is the table turning, and it is the most brutal and beautiful of God's wraths. And it is the greatest justice, and it is the greatest love, and in the greatest mercy. And it is, number four, it is his redemptive wrath. And this is the wrath that God poured out in full on Jesus at the cross on behalf of those who would believe in him. That is where God's merciless unrestrained, unfiltered anger and fury in its full punishment was poured out on Jesus Christ. And Jesus received what me and you deserve. What me and you would stand at that judgment seat and our hearts would be crushed to know that our name was not found in the book of life. That wrath, that eternal punishment was poured out on Jesus instead of us. Isaiah 53, 5-6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, all of us have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you feel the weight of that kind of love? 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him 
to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, out of his inexplicable love, chose to be our sacrifice. You realize what's happening here? This is the judge who is taking our sentence because of his love for us. Jesus is the judge. It's the son. The father does not judge. Jesus is the judge. All judgment is put into his hands. And so that judge chose to take our punishment. When that judge looked at us and said, guilty is charged, he also said, I will pay the life sentence. I will pay the death sentence that they deserve so that we could go free out of his great love for us. That is mind-boggling. That is, we can't even wrap our minds around that. We are put in right standing with the holy, righteous God of the universe. That's what justification is. We are put in right standing with him. He sees us just as righteous as he sees himself because he paid the punishment by receiving the full wrath that we deserved. And those who repent of their wickedness, there is now no condemnation. There is now no damnation. There is now no punishment of wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Isaiah 118, though your sins, though your offenses towards a holy God are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. How do we receive such an incredible gift? John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not eternal death, but eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Who is like our God? That he would love us. Who is like our God that is so perfectly just that we can find peace in knowing that he is the judge? Who is like our God? Recap. There is more to this life. And how we lived this life will be judged perfectly. God is justice and his wrath is poured out against unrighteousness. His justice against sin is expressed in his catastrophic wrath, consequential wrath, well, that's the one that gets me, his wrath in the final judgment, and his redemptive wrath. Jesus took the wrathful punishment believers deserved on the cross. And those who believe in him are free from his wrath against sin. Understanding the love and wrath that's poured out at the cross his infinite wrath against sin and his infinite love for us, it demands two responses from us. For those who would call him our Lord, it absolutely, actually, it demands two responses from everyone. There are those who are obedient and those who are disobedient. Those who are disobedient will receive complete and full wrath. Those who are obedient will come underneath the blood of the cross of Christ, but it calls everyone to repent, not to run from him, but to run to the one that gave it all for our sin. You understand how different it is? If the judge is sitting up with a gavel and he's hovering over the smite button and he's thinking about you, that's someone to run away from. 
But if the judge himself comes down from his seat and gives his life for you so you can be free, that's a judge you run to. Are you following me? So it calls us to repentance. That when we sin, when we blow it, when we make our mistake, instead of saying, I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I'm condemned, we say, I'm convicted. Jesus, take me back. Jesus, thank you for all you've done for me. Please, I want to be, I want to be clean and clear. I want your righteousness. Please forgive me for my sin. I repent. I'm turning directions. I'm coming towards you. Paul preached this in Athens in Acts 17, and he talks about three different kinds of people. Three different kinds of people were called to repent. Those who sneered at him, those who wanted to hear more and learn more, and those who believed. If you're a sneering kind of person in here, oh man, may God change your heart. I don't envy you. If you're someone who wants to learn more, we have some amazing leaders in this room. We have some amazing students that would love to talk about Jesus with you more. If you want to learn more, you're in the right place. And if there's anyone in here who would like to give your life to him, it's so simple. You just believe that Jesus is the son of God and you repent for your sins. And for those of you in here who made the decision, boom, it's amazing. What kind of God do we serve that loves us this much? Woo, I don't even know. And number two, the second thing that his loving wrath demands from us is it calls us to deny ourselves and to live for him. Because our lives are no longer our own. We were bought with a high price. Each day that God gives us is not meant to be a gift for us to enjoy alone. It's meant to be a gift that we give back to him. Every day that we wake up in the morning is an altar. And on that altar, we lay our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And so may every day that we live be pouring out on this altar, maybe a sacrifice to him, things that are pleasing to him, righteous thoughts, righteous words, righteous actions for a God who loves us this much. Our day should not produce apathy towards his wrath and towards his love. Our day should be an expression of our thanks for his wrath and his love. So I've got two challenges for you. The first one is that we begin to repent quickly. Let us run back to the judge who loves us that much. It should be daily that we come before him and repent of our sins to get right with him because he is holy and because he loves us that much. And then two, I'd like you to ask yourself the question, and this can be personal for you, between you and the Holy Spirit. What is one small way you can change your thoughts, words, or actions to be for him instead of yourself tomorrow? What is that? Let's take a minute, think about it. What is one small way you can change your thoughts, your words, your actions tomorrow? Our words should be as holy as the God that we're serving. And so often our words are, at very best, vain and empty and useless. Our actions should reflect the God that we love. Our thoughts, man, Holy Spirit, get into our thoughts. Lord, may we take every thought captive and put it underneath your cross. What is that one thing that you can change? Something small that you can apply tomorrow. Heavenly Father, you are gracious, you are kind, you are just, you are wrathful, you are loving, you are merciful, you are holy. Lord, I thank you for this season of patience, this season of grace that you are withholding your full wrath 
so that more people can come to know you. That you are withholding the full force of your punishment so that more could call on you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room gets right before you. Lord, that we get to have our May 19th, 2021 reunion, our Elevate reunion, and not a single person from this room is missing. Lord, I thank you that when we come before your throne and you maybe ask us why we are worthy, we can simply respond, it is all Jesus. I stand behind Jesus. That's all I've got. That's the best that I've got. Oh, Lord, it'll be so much more than enough. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your justice and your wrath against wickedness and the way that you use it to show you your grace, your mercy, and your love. We give tonight to you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.